And it gives me even more hope that as long as we continue to love the Lord and serve the Lord and stay in his word, because, you know, that is going to be something that's very key in these last days, staying in the word of God. Because we have a lot of, um, a lot of churches nowadays that are kind of bought into the political aspect of things. They've kind of bought into this thing, you know, that we need to support uh, uh, pro-choice issues. Or we need to support same-sex marriage uh, because, you know, uh, well, it's probably politically expedient, you know. But when you do that, what you're saying to the Lord is, I don't really believe your word or trust it. And, and, you know, that may be a hard thing for, for some people to think to, that, that I'm saying something harsh. But no, it's the, it's the fact. Let me, let me read you a few things. They go all the way back to George Washington. The first president of the United States. These words are attributed to him. He said, it is impossible to rightly govern the world without God and the Bible. It is impossible to rightly govern the world without God and the Bible. Another president that you may be familiar with, Abraham Lincoln, the 16th president of the United States, said this. He said, in regard for this great book, speaking of the Bible, I have to say it is the best gift God has given to man. All the good Savior gave to the world was communicated through this book. Did you hear that? All the good, all the good Savior gave to the world was communicated through this book. But I became even more impressed with the words of Harry Truman, the 33rd president of the United States. who actually wrote this. He said, the fundamental basis of this nation's laws was given to Moses on the mount. The fundamental basis of our Bill of Rights comes from the teachings we get from Exodus and St. Matthew, from Isaiah and St. Paul. If we don't have a proper fundamental moral background, we will finally end up with a totalitarian government which does not believe in rights for anybody except the state. Isn't that a tremendous statement? And that being said many, many years ago, it could have been said yesterday. Speaking of the many who have embraced the very philosophies, political philosophies of those very same totalitarian states, what we call socialism today that leads to communism today? In our own country. And it's, and it's really a, a civil war that is aiming to be an even more painful kind of a war than what we saw back in the 19th century. Let me leave you with one more thing before we get into our study tonight, but Patrick Henry, I think most of us know who Patrick Henry is. I don't know that a lot of our own kids today know who Patrick Henry is because they don't teach history anymore like we used to learn history in the schools. But Patrick Henry, who is known for his famous statement, give me liberty or give me death, you all remember that? You remember studying that in school? I do. I never forgot it. He also said this. He said, it cannot be emphasized too clearly and too often that this nation was founded not by religionists, but by Christians. Not on religion, but on the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's coming from someone who was living during that very time of that revolution that we're celebrating 
tomorrow. The declaration of independence from that tyrannical nation that wanted to tax everybody to, to the furthest extent, to make them worship all the same way under one church, and to hold them in, in, in some kind of bond. The bonds of tyranny, not the bonds of liberty. It's a different thing. Freedom, we all know, is not free. Come, comes with a price. Came with a great price then. Still does today. But there were more Christians that signed the Declaration of Independence 243 years ago than there were what people have said were all deists. Deists being those who believed in an impersonal God who created things but then just kind of let us, you know, run it to the, you know, in, in our own human way. No, there were a lot more Christians than that. And they signed the Declaration. I was reading about one pastor who actually was wearing his clerical robes at his church and stood up and gave a message dealing with the need for the church and the people in the church to take a stand against this tyranny during those days. And as soon as his message was over, he threw his clerical robe off and he was wearing the uniform. Of, of, a, uh, of, one, of a colonist who was going on to fight with George Washington. Eventually he went on to do so. And he was made a general of, over that particular unit that, that, uh, that, he, that he led. And I wonder how many in the church are doing that today, praying for this nation and taking a stand for truth taking a stand for the righteousness of God, taking a stand for the righteousness that we are supposed to be showing to this world and to this country. Because I can tell you this, there is a great divide today between those who believe God and believe the word of God and believe Christ and believe the work that Jesus Christ did for men and those who do not believe and who want to take every semblance of, of the Christian faith out of, out of government, out of the public eye. There are many of those today in the government already, in the government. We've even had one president whose main goal, and he stated it in his own way, that there was now going to be a fundamental change to this country. Sad. But it shouldn't make us dip our heads. It needs to make us lift our heads and realize that we've been called. We've been called for such a time as this. You remember those words? They were words that were spoken to Esther. You are where you are for such a time as this. And it's time to stand in these times for Christ and for the word of God. You know, there was a, there was a, a, a slogan in, in, uh, during the Revolutionary War. And that slogan was so simple. It was, no king but King Jesus. No king but King Jesus. That's the way it needs to be. Always. Because there's only one real kingdom, and that's the kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And he's going to set it up. Not in Washington, not in Rome, 
in Zion, in Jerusalem, his city. I want to be there. I want you to be there. And you will be there. We need to stay faithful to the Lord. Let's turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. I want to speak a little bit about the weapons of our warfare. Because there is a warfare going on. By the way, we'll come back to Amos next time. We need to realize that we're in a warfare today. A greater warfare than, than, than we've ever imagined. I mean, we're, 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 we're in a warfare with Satan every day. I mean, as Christians, we know that. We should never take that for granted. We're in a warfare every day. But there's a warfare as well for the nation. And you know, we've talked a lot about nations that God is going to judge. And we oftentimes talk about whether, you know, America is in prophecy or not. And we will probably talk a lot about it more later. But it's a, it's, it's a warfare that we cannot retreat from. We cannot retreat from it. 2 Corinthians 10 verses 1 through 6 says, Now I, Paul, myself... <clears throat> beseech you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, who in presence and base among you, but being absent and bold towards you. But I beseech you that I may not be bold when I am present with that confidence wherewith I think to be bold against some which think of us as if we walked according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations and every high thing that, exalt, that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God and, and bringeth into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ, and having in a, in a readiness to revenge all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. So as I've already mentioned, we, we are in the midst of celebrating the 243rd anniversary of the United States of America, declaring its independence from Great Britain. And some people like to say that it's America's 243rd birthday. But however you want to com commemorate the, the holiday we know as the 4th of July, it is a special time to consider the struggles faced on both the political and military fronts the wrestling within the revolutionary government as it strove to develop a foundational and workable constitution that would give every man, woman, and child an opportunity for life, for liberty, and for the pursuit of happiness, and by the way, even for holiness, the pursuit of holiness. Much of that striving would eventually be exercised in warfare, combating those who were considered the imperialistic aggressors for the sake of freedom. 71 years ago, another fledgling nation found itself not only in a battle for some of the very same reasons, but most importantly, for its very existence. And of course, I speak of the modern state of Israel. For this nation, warfare has been, for all intents and purposes, a daily necessity. From the very moment it was announced that Israel had all the votes necessary in the United Nations to become an independent nation, it has been fighting for its very survival and continuation as a nation. And in 243 years, we here in the United States have never been as surrounded and opposed and hated as Israel has been and is today. That is, until now. We are equally hated throughout the world to the extent that Israel has been called the little Satan and the U.S. the big Satan by some of our mutual enemies. One that continues today to give us a little bit of a hard time called Iran. A nation that we have seen very clearly in prophecy 
is, is, is very key in what is happening today along with Russia and Turkey. We'll come back to that another time. But sadly, that, that same sort of hatred and anti-Semitism is now found within not only, listen carefully, not only the borders of our nation, but even in the halls of Congress itself, and not just in one political party. And those of you who are military know the necessity for good and proper weapons, which could be used for both safety and defense, first strike capabilities and the like. The Apostle Paul, in his second letter to the Corinthian church, points out that even we as believers are to distinguish between spiritual weapons that are only fleshly and the true weapons of our warfare, which are mighty through God. So to understand Paul's statement in 2 Corinthians 10, it must be understood that he was about to be answering his critics as to his own ministry. There were those detractors who claimed that the apostle was a coward and that he wouldn't face his critics face to face. Because they would say, well, yeah, you're bold in your letters, but you, won't, you don't want to defend yourself in person. So that's the first two or three verses that we read. They and others were saying that Paul walked according to the flesh and not the spirit, as he was exhorting the churches to do. But this was now the time for him to defend his apostolic authority. And so when you go back to verse 3, it says, For though we walk in the flesh, notice what he says, Though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. That is, every one of our thoughts needs to be brought under the obedience of Christ. We are to obey Christ. We are to obey Christ in our actions, in our words, and in our thoughts. And having in a readiness to revenge all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled, he goes on to say, Paul made it clear that he was indeed a flesh and blood human being who struggled with the same things the Corinthian believers struggled with themselves. But he made it equally clear that he did not war according to the flesh. And sadly today, some in the church may be warring according to the flesh, others have just stopped warring at all and believe everything that the world is telling them. They've retreated to that uh, aspect of just accepting whatever comes their way because they don't want to offend anybody. Does that sound familiar to you? We were just talking about, you know, the, the Nike shoes that are offending people because there's a flag on them. The carnal weapons that he renounced, the carnal weapons that Paul renounced were those his enemies were using. They were manipulative and deceitful in their ways, in their words, and in their weapons. What were the weapons that he did use? Well, Paul will tell you what weapons he used in, in Ephesians chapter 6. When he says in verse 10, finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. That particular verse right there, verse 10, gives us an indication that he's not talking about anything that's, that's material, anything that's something that's you could put in your hands, you know. He says, my brethren, be strong in the Lord. That's a spiritual aspect and in the power of his might. As believers in Jesus Christ today, you and I cannot see God. As a matter of fact, the scripture tells us that. God himself, so you can't see God. But we know that he's there. We know that he's here right now. We know that we're his 
church is, where his people are, he said, I'll be among you. Where two or three are gathered in my name, there I will be in your midst. I'll be with you. So immediately we know that the weapons of our warfare are not carnal because they're spiritual. And then he says in verse 11, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. The lies and the deceits and the, and the, we, and the weapons of the devil himself which can come at us in every sort of way. And then he tells us, for we wrestle not against flesh and blood. We're not wrestling against flesh and blood, therefore our weapons cannot be fleshly, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. This is the battle that we face every day. It is the battle that the church is facing in the United States of America right now, in our very own country. The true church of Jesus Christ, the true believer, the one who believes Genesis to Revelation is being attacked today. Sadly, it's being attacked by some ignorantly. It's being attacked by some people who are not discerning that they've taken their eyes off of God and off of his word. That they're starting to believe the nonsense that people are, that, you know, the, the talking heads on TV that are attacking this country from all different sorts of directions. He says, wherefore take unto you the whole armor of God. That's the second time he mentions that. In verse, 12, in verse 11, he says, put on the whole armor of God. In verse 13, he says, wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God. The whole armor. You can't go into battle half-dressed. You can't go into battle half-equipped. That you may be able to withstand in the evil day. What does that say about the evil day? It says that the evil day is one that comes at you like a storm. You're either going to withstand it or you're going to be blown away by it. And having done all to stand. Stand therefore. Three times in that little statement he talks about standing and withstanding. Stand therefore having your loins girt about with truth, putting on a belt of truth, the belt that holds everything together. Law enforcement officers understand how important their belt is. Our soldiers understand the importance of the belt that they have to wear, the things that they have to put on it. They gird themselves with it. They're protected by it. And the best weapon that we have and the first weapon that we have is truth. Always truth. And having on the breastplate of righteousness. The breastplate that protects all of the vital organs of a, of a, of a, of a soldier, the vital organs of a, of a law enforcement officer, a police officer. The shield. The vest. Your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. The shoes that take you into a battle that says, you know, you're, you're fighting a battle for the people who need Christ. That's why you take them the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith wherewith you shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. And take the helmet of salvation. All those first mentioned are the most defensive uh, weapons that we as Christians can put on. And then we're given one offensive weapon. And the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The sword of the Spirit. 
praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. Every piece of the armor of God points out significant characteristics of Jesus Christ. Every piece. Truth. Righteousness. The gospel of peace. The prince of peace. The shield of faith. The helmet of salvation. And the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. Listen, we're living in a time when the message of salvation is being compromised with conversations about a certain type of spiritual growth in the flesh, conversations about having, you know, all kinds of spiritual formation. These, these are all terms that, you know, the emerging church is using today. They're setting aside the Bible. They, they say, you know, we don't, we, don't want to be, we don't want people to think that we just, you know, we worship the Bible. That's what they say about Christians that read and study and believe the Bible. That we're worshiping the Bible. Really? I don't worship the Bible, do you? I worship the God of the Bible. I serve the Lord of the Bible. But the Bible is what he tells us to read. What he tells us is our weapon. I mean, Bibles aren't necessary anymore in many churches and church services today because church growth proponents don't want to offend others. There's that word again, offend. You know that Jesus himself said, I didn't come to, you know, make nice here. I came to offend. Not that he came purposely to offend. He came in his coming. He offends people. When he came, he offended People in households turning to the Lord. Who's the first one that attacks some of us when we came to, you know, when we came to the Lord? Who attacked us? Family members attacked us. We were leaving the status quo. We were getting out outside of the box. We were actually getting into a better box. That's not a box. It's the kingdom of God. People today are more interested, uh, people today are more interested in what they can get from a church. This is something that saddens me as a pastor. They're consumers. Instead of going to church to be communers. I didn't call us to be consumers. He called us to be communers. He called us to commune one with another and to have communion with him. To have fellowship with him and with one another. Those who want to commune with God, linger with God, spend time with God, spend time with the Lord. We often, you know, we oftentimes call our coming to church, I'm going to the house of God. That's okay. Well, yeah, you're going to the house of God. Well, let me encourage you that we need to come to the God of the house. This coming Sunday when we get together, and uh, we're going to come to the Table of communion, okay, but let's also come to the Lord of the table. Not just to the table of communion, let's come to the Lord of the table. And more than just needing to know who our commander-in-chief is, we need to know the Lord and master of our lives, the one and true God who loved us and loved us with an everlasting love. We need to know him. And he's made himself available for us to know him and to love him, and to trust him, and to live for him, and to represent him, and to speak of him. And by the way, our enemy is working hard to keep us from that. The enemy works hard to keep us from that. I mean, that's his part of this warfare. Disrupting God's communication toward us, and keeping us from loving God with all of our hearts. He would like to keep each and every one of us from loving him with all of our hearts. I want to say this just once. I know I'm preaching to the choir. You guys are here. There's a lot of empty chairs here today. 
And I don't say that, you know, I, I'm, I, don't, I don't have this pride about things, you know. We're here because God brought us here, whether you want to believe that or not. So the way it is. And there's got to be something that God is wanting to speak to our hearts about today. But here's the thing. You take anything home with you at all. Just remember, we have an enemy that wants to keep us from loving God. And wants to keep us from serving God. Listen to what Jesus said in Matthew 22, verses 37 to 40. He said, Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment, and the second is like unto it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Satan isn't going to mind too much if you love your neighbor as yourself. But he minds very much if you love God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind. That's what he's working the hardest against. Working at us, toward us. We're his targets. There's also a pervasive, pervasive evil that exists from which we need to battle against as well in this world. And we saw the face of evil. I know I'm talking about almost 18 years ago. But we saw the face of evil when American Flight 11 from Boston crashed into the North Tower of the World Trade Center. We saw the face of evil. And only to see that face broaden 17 minutes later when United Flight 175 crashed into the South Tower. We saw it. At that moment, it became apparent that we were not simply witnessing an awful tragedy. Evil was at work. But consider that on any given city street, we can find overt evil in the, in the drug cartels and pimps that openly promote their wares. Or on any given computer, you know, there lurks, there lurks the, the evils of pornographic materials or overtly sensual ads meant to lure people to believe the lies of unrestrained materialism. I mean, evil doesn't even hide from the church. Our weapons can no longer be carnal weapons. We're not called to fight the battles against the world, the flesh, and the devil with the weapons of the world. No, our greatest weapon in all our battles is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is our greatest weapon. He himself told us that life would be a battle, but he also told us that we will, because of him, emerge victorious. John 16, 30, uh, 33. He said, These things I have spoken unto you, that in me you might have peace. In the world you shall have tribulation. But be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Do you know that he said that before he went to the cross? He didn't say it after he went to the cross. He said it before. Because it was already done. The victory was already won. In the understanding of eternity, Jesus has conquered sin and death and hell and Satan. But there's still life to live. There are still people to bring into the kingdom of God. There's still work for us to do. But we can have that peace. And again, remember that peace is not just only some kind of a sense of, 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 of being calm. or it, It's Peace is always the result of a victory after great conflict. 
when a nation wins a war, there are terms of peace that are brought out and made. We aim toward peace after the battle. And Jesus said, I've taken the battle. And in the sense of eternity, I have won the battle and I've overcome the world. So what greater weapon then do we have than the word of God who is the God of the word? The next chapter, John 17, verses 13 through 18, it says, And now come I to thee, and these things I speak in the world, that they might have my joy fulfilled in themselves. This is Jesus' prayer to the Father. It's called the high priestly prayer, but it's also called the Lord's prayer. He's praying to the Father for us, for his people. And he says, I have given them thy word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I don't know if people catch that or not, but verse 14 says, I've given them thy word, and the world has hated them because they're not of the world, even as I am not of the world. What, what is that telling you and me today? That, that's telling us we're not, we don't need to be of this world. But too often, we want to bring the world into the church rather than the church go out into the world and preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And notice what he goes on to pray. He says, I pray not that, they sh that thou shouldst take them out of the world. No, don't take them out of the world yet. He will take his body out of the world, his, his church. He will take them out. But he says, I pray not that thou shouldst take them out of the world, but that thou shouldst keep them from the evil. They're not of the world, even as I'm not of the world. Sanctify them through thy truth. In other words, set them apart. Make them holy through thy truth. Thy word is truth. As thou hast sent me into the world, even so have I also sent them into the world. Folks, we do not wage war as the world does. We do not wage war as the world wages war. Notice verse, uh, verse 3 again of 2 Corinthians 10. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. Believers in Jesus Christ are to be different. We may be in the world, but we live by an entirely different ethic. We're not to act like other people, operating from the same motives, or even gauging success in life as others do. We're not carrying on a worldly war, but a spiritual one. And by the way, we haven't been called to retreat. We were called to live right in the midst of this world. And notice in Matthew 10, verse 16, that he said, Behold, I send you forth as sheep in the midst of wolves. Be therefore wise as serpents and harmless as doves. Now, I would never even suggest as some may that this statement could lead us to the conclusion that our shepherd is lazy. No. No way at all. But I will say that he knows something about the power of God that we have yet to understand. And still, we should know why we can be sent forth as sheep in the midst of wolves. We should know why. Why we can be sent out into the world. It's all because of the power of the Holy Spirit in every believer in Jesus Christ. The power of the Holy Spirit in every believer in Christ. In Zechariah 4, verse 6, it says, we're just reading the last part of it, the word of the Lord unto Zerubbabel, saying, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. Not by might nor by power, not by the might of men nor the power of men, but by the spirit of God, saith the Lord. I think of that grand statement that Jesus made after the resurrection to those that were gathered waiting for the promise of the Father. And before Jesus ascended into heaven, actually, 
It says, when they therefore, uh, Acts chapter 1, by the way, uh, verses 6 to 8, <clears throat> when they therefore were come together, they asked of him, saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? And he said unto, it, unto them, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father has put in his own power, but you shall receive power, dunamis, you shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost is come upon you, and you shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. You shall receive power. That's the power of the Holy Spirit that they were waiting for in Jerusalem. That is the power that has been promised to every believer in Jesus Christ. In fact, we cannot say that Jesus Christ is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. So, even as believers, we have to have the Spirit of God. Now, there is that dimension of, of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which is necessary for us to believe that God has empowered us with gifts, and we are to use those gifts. 1 Corinthians chapters 12 and 14. We're to use them in the church, to build up the church, to edify the church, and to give praise and honor to God. So the next thing that Paul says about these weapons is that they have divine power. We're talking about power. Look at what he says. Verses 4 through 6 of 2 Corinthians 10. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ and having in a readiness to revenge all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. They actually work. The weapons of our warfare in the Spirit of God actually work. They destroy strongholds. They overthrow entrenched evil. They set people free. That is what they're for. If they do not do that, then they're worthless. If they're not setting us free, then they're of no value. But there's value in the Spirit of God, isn't there? Yes? There's value in the Spirit of God. There's value in the gifts of God. So, if they don't do what they're supposed to do, they're, they're, they're no better than any other program that man can come up with. If man comes up, man, I'll tell you what, man comes up with a lot of programs, a lot of things that man can do, you know. Well, let's read this book, let's do that book, let's do this thing, let's do that thing, you know, and it just on and on and on. How about getting into God's Word and doing that? Because that's a better thing to do. It's tried and true. It's tried and trusted. Let's get back into the Word of God and believe it. So what are some of these weapons? And I'll do this as quickly as I can because of time. The chief, weapon, the chief weapon for the Christian, as I stated already, is truth. The chief weapon is truth. First of all, we must choose to live in truth. That has to be the choice of every believer. Well, what is the truth for us? Well, let's begin with what Jesus said of himself. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. So we need to know Jesus. And we need to know him as truth. What does it say about Jesus concerning truth? John writes in John chapter 1, verse 1, you all should know this. In the beginning was the logos, the word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So the Word of God, the truth of God, is Jesus himself. 
and the Word became flesh, verse 14 of, of John chapter 1, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory. Even as the glory of the only begotten Son, full of grace and truth. Full of grace and truth. Truth. John chapter 8, verses 31 and 32, Jesus gives us really the extent of what truth does for us as believers. Jesus said to those Jews which believed on him, if you continue in my word, and by the way, let's not make light of that little phrase, continue in my word. That's what I've been saying from the very beginning of this study. We need to continue in the word of God. But he said to them who believe, if you continue in my word, then you're my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. The truth sets us free. It sets us free to do those things that honor God, that serve God, that promote God, that magnify God and Christ and the word of God and the power of the Holy Spirit. Truth isn't knowledge, nor is it education. Education, in particular humanistic education or secular education, is the favored weapon of those attacking our problems today as the most effective way of solving them. But we see the inadequacy of, of education when we see that knowing the difference between right and wrong does not guarantee that a person will choose right over wrong. You, do you understand what I'm saying? We can say, well, this is right and this is wrong. Well, you got to still choose. And the scripture tells us we need to choose life. Therefore, we need to choose what is right. That's why we must be committed to truth, God's truth. It reveals reality. It reorders the world with God as supreme and defines the purpose of our existence. What is our purpose? It is to glorify God in all things. You know where we see that? Psalm 86, verses 11 and 12. The psalmist says, Teach me thy way, O Lord. I will walk in thy truth. Unite my heart to fear thy name. I will praise thee, O Lord my God, with all my heart, and I will glorify thy name forevermore. What does that begin with? Teach me thy way, O Lord. I will walk in thy truth. I will walk, meaning I will live my life in your truth. The second weapon that is of great value to us here is the characteristic weapon for the Christian. What is the characteristic we weapon? It's love. Agape love. Now I'm going to just read these scriptures to you. I read them just recently on the Sunday morning, I believe. 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 through 10. Charity suffereth long. Charity, by the way, is agape love or agapao. Charity suffereth long and is kind. Charity envieth not. Charity vaunteth not itself. Does, in other words, it doesn't uh, exalt itself, it's not puffed up, does not behave itself unseemly, seeketh not her own, is not easily provoked, thinketh no evil, rejoices not in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. Charity never faileth. But whether there be prophecies, they shall fail. Whether there be tongues, they shall cease. Whether there be knowledge, it shall vanish away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part shall be done away. Now just, just jump down to verse 13. And now abideth faith, hope, charity, these three. But the greatest of these is charity. I've oftentimes said that we've kind of weakened the word love in our vocabulary, in our English vocabulary. Because we use the word for love for a lot of things. I mean, we love, you know, we love our spouse, we love our families, we love ice cream, we love our pets, we, 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 we love the El Paso Chihuahuas, you know, we, some people for some reason love the Dallas Cowboys, I don't know, you know, just the, it's all those kind of things, yeah. <laughs> We love fireworks displays, you know, okay. So we, we use that word, but in the Greek, there's, there's actually four words. There's a couple more, but the four in the scriptures that we know of, four words that describe, that are used the word love. 
but they're various and different meanings. The greatest one, though, is agapao, agape, because it is the love of God. It is the un, uh, uh, compromising love of God. So for the King James Version to use charity is kind of unique because it separates really our understanding then. And it's not just charity as we understand charities today or the word charity. It, it, it speaks of a, a love that goes way beyond what man's love can be. As it's described by John in 1 John 4 verses 7 to 13. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. And again, the word that John uses here is the word agapal. He that loveth knoweth not God, for God is love. And this was manifested the love of God toward us, because that God sent his only begotten Son into the world that we might live through him. Herein is love. Get this. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. No man has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God dwelleth in us, and his love is perfected in us. Hereby know we that we dwell in him, and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. There's another important reason for the power of the Holy Spirit to be one of our weapons, because it also is the characteristic of every believer, the love of God. So God's love is a powerful change agent that transforms people caught in webs of sin into saints who honor God. And the third weapon, the commanding weapon for the Christian is righteousness. Righteousness. Ephesians 4 verse 1, Paul said, I therefore the prisoner of the Lord beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you are called. Folks, we will not win any ground for Christ without a commitment to obedience to both truth and love. Obedience to truth and love. In other words, we don't just stuff truth and love into our minds. We put them in our hearts and live them out. We have to live our truth, the truth that God gave us. As, as Christ is, so are we to be in this world. When Paul said, follow me because I follow Jesus, that's saying I'm following Jesus in every step that he himself took. I want, I want to live in the righteousness of Christ. So when Christ came into our lives, a new life came with him. We can't stay as we were, ex excusing our wrong behavior. We must put off the old man and put on the new. Listen, we've only scratched the surface of this particular subject, but, and, and there's so many different directions that we could go when it comes to the battles that we face and the warfare that we fight. But one thing is very clear. We cannot win without the cross of Jesus Christ. We cannot win without the blood of Jesus Christ. We cannot win without the Word of God. We cannot win without the Holy Spirit. We cannot win without our Lord and Master Jesus Christ being our Lord and Master. In other words, we don't just say He's Lord and Master, we submit to His Lordship and His being Master of our life. That's a different thing than just saying, I know about Jesus. We have to say, I know Jesus, and I believe Jesus, and I obey Jesus. John 3, 36 says, He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. That's what I want each and every one of you to have. Everlasting life. I got to stop here for just a second and just ask you to think about that statement because it's very hard for the finite mind to understand something that is eternal because we're not eternal in the sense that we 
had a beginning. But God, who had no beginning and no end, is giving us eternal life. Why, I don't know. It isn't because we deserve it. I don't deserve it. Not one of us in this room deserves it. In fact, what we do deserve is punishment for our sins. The sins that we committed against a holy God. But God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. I didn't finish verse 36. And I need to finish verse 36. He that believeth on the Son has everlasting life, and he that believeth not the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God abideth on him. Folks, that is so crucial to what happens the moment that Jesus Christ breaks through the clouds and gathers his children home and takes them home. What's crucial is if you believe in the Son, you will have life. If you do not believe, you will not see life or have it. But God has made it available because he loved the world so much that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. I thank God for the 4th of July. I do. I thank the Lord for what it represents, what it means. And if along the way you get a hot dog or a hamburger, it's okay. That's a little sustenance. And if later at night when the sun goes down and you start seeing the you know, fireworks, that's all right too. It's fun. Not for the dogs, though. You always know, have dogs all the time. They, they go crazy with the fireworks and all kinds of stuff. So we don't have dogs anymore. You guys don't need to know that. What you do need to know is this. I thank God for this country because it's a special country. It was founded on the same very, the very same word but the nation of Israel was founded, both in ancient times and in modern times. And people don't know that. But modern Israel cannot be modern Israel without, their, without the foundation being the same from the very beginning. And there's one clue to it all. The same language is spoken after thousands of years that it wasn't is back in the land again. Why? Because God said it's special. It's his language. Why do I bring that up? Because this country was crucial to their birth again. Without the state of Israel today, there could be no promise of the rapture of the church. There could be no promise of a, of a kingdom established in Jerusalem on the very mount where Jesus shed his blood and died on a cross. But it's there again because Jesus is coming. Will God bless this country in the condition that it's in today? I don't know. I'd like to say yes. In reality, I might have to say I don't know. But I do know one thing. If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin, and I will heal their land. Well, that is a formula for revival.
And I pray that this country in some way will be seen as still the special light on a hill that it was for Israel when it was born again. So, I thank the Lord. May God bless you. May God bless the United States of America as we look for the coming of Jesus.